Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, the podcast which opens up the world of investing, making important information easier to understand and more interesting. I'm Anna, and in this episode, I had the privilege of interviewing Andre Polgar who runs One Minute Economics, one of the most successful YouTube channels about the global economy worldwide, simplifying economics for a huge audience, from universities to just people who are interested. Andre has some really interesting ideas about what is about to happen in the global economy and how this might influence your investment strategy. So if you're thinking about investing or just interested in the economy, this interview is for you. So our guest today, Andre Polgar, made his name through teaching people economics through one-minute animations on YouTube. They've been a great success and are used in schools and universities all over the world. And he's also a successful investor, entrepreneur, best-selling author, blogger, and vlogger. He's about to launch another book following on from an Amazon bestseller, Wealth Management 2.0. And the new book focuses on what is wrong with the economy, the financial system, and ultimately our way of life. So he's about the best person we could speak to about economics, financial crises, and investment generally and in relation to property specifically. Welcome to The Return, Andre. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to be here. So I briefly described what you do, but there's loads more. Before we get started, can you explain a bit more about what you do and how it's come about and what's driving all this? Yeah, well, I basically made it my life's mission to articulate and propagate ideas. It's it's always difficult for me when people ask, what do you do for a living? Because... I'm also an entrepreneur. I also invest, especially in exotic assets. So it's 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 a bit of a mouthful to start telling people everything I do. So I nowadays I just like to focus on the things that give my professional life meaning, at least so I feel. So that's kind that's the business I'm in. I'm in the business of articulating and propagating ideas through various mediums and. I've obviously uh, gotten a fair bit of recognition for what I do on One Minute Economics, which basically just started out as a hobby with me being frustrated when it comes to the way economics is being taught at the university level. Let's not even talk about you know high school and 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 other stuff. It started out as me just saying, okay, maybe it might be a good idea to publish an animation once every two months and just see where that takes me. But strangely enough, it worked. You know, I had people who appreciated my way of teaching them economics, people who said, look, I mean, uh, I remember practically falling asleep after a two or three hour long seminar hosted by someone who didn't want to be there. I wanted to be there even less. And at the end of the day, I drew the line and I didn't really get much out of it in terms of value. And then I just watched one of your videos and I understood, you know, like I've started with the basics, like inflation, deflation, and I've moved on to fractional reserve banking, derivatives and, you know, more in-depth topics like, for example, statistics related stuff. And I've always been pretty good at making complicated stuff seem easy. So on the one hand, I kind of my goal here is getting the message across that you cannot escape economics. Like you make economic decisions, whether or not you realize it, whether or not you want to do it, even not doing anything is at the end of the day, a decision that has economic repercussions. So I tell this to most people, I get that you have families, you have jobs, you have a lot of things going on. And I'm the last guy in the world who would tell you something like, no, 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 what I do should be your number one priority. And please listen to me two hours a day. You know, instead I tell people, 
one thing. Like just think about how much time the average person spends binge watching stuff on Netflix or generally speaking wasting time. And I come with a decent value proposition in terms of the bang I give people not for their buck but for their time. And I'm like, look, give me one minute of your time every now and then and I promise that I'm going to teach you not everything I know but pretty darn close. And one thing led to another and I now have, I think, 150 animations ranging across different categories from economic history to statistics to personal finance and so on. That, of course, led me to also, you know, work on my books. I have Wealth Management 2.0 and now my most recent one. And with my second book, with The Age of Anomaly, I've, I, I've had a bit of sense of urgency, you know. Uh, this thing that kept bugging me, this idea that kept me pretty restless that bad things are coming. And those of you who follow my work know that I'm not a doom and gloomer. Like I'm not the type of guy who says that the end of the world is upon us and that, you know, prepare or be doomed. No. And actually one of the main things I tell people when discussing my book is that, of course, there are doom and gloomers. There are people who make money by selling fear. And whatever, that's their decision. But when someone like myself who got recognition precisely for the balanced economic views and for the well-researched economic views he puts forward, when someone like myself is a pretty close to being in panic mode, then maybe it's time to pay attention. So mm-hmm. that kind of led me to, to directing most of my energy toward writing The Age of Anomaly. And, you know, here we are. Fantastic. And you said that you invest a lot, but it's not in things like property. It's in what you call exotic assets. (laughs) Tell me about that. Actually, I live in the second largest city in Romania, and it's a major university hub. And I've done pretty well here with a couple of you know, small properties that I rent out to students. So it's a thing that's, it's kind of like a regional real estate opportunity. And I've done decent enough over the past, let's say three, four years uh, in that area. But what I specialize in are, of course, exotic assets like domain names. For example, I think I'm pretty much, I'm the only economist who covered the short domain mania from uh, early 2015 to early 2016, where to give you just a quick example, due to the flood of money that came from China, domains that you could have had for eight to 10 bucks in 2009, 2010 ended up being worth over $2,000 each uh, by, let's say, December 2015 to January 2016. So you're basically flipping domain names. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, uh, that's something that came natural to me since I was an entrepreneur and I got, I got in touch with people who bought and sold domains. They kind of told me, hey, it's a thing. You should try it. I tried it. I was pretty good at it. Then that led me, of course, to crypto and losing a bunch of sanity over there. But, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's uh, I, I'm not the kind of economist who just sits in his ivory tower reads a bunch of books and then basically repeats the things he's read to the people who listen to him. Like I'm the guy you usually find in the eye of the hurricane, whether it comes to domain names, whether it comes to crypto. It's it, These things are kind of a good balance for myself, a good balance between, of course, making money, having a bit of a thrill that keeps me going. And of course, there's the professional, the academic dimension as well, because, you know, there's far more you get from these things in terms of, of insight if you also analyze them from an academic perspective. And then, of course, based on your findings, write about the things you've learned. 
Yeah. I think we have a lot in common in our um, opinion of the education system and how it should focus on economics and finance and money more. But also, I think what you say about teaching people economics, but also practicing it is so important because, for, for example, from personal experience, when I was studying economics at university and finance, it used to really frustrate me that people were telling you how things should be done and how things worked, but yet because they hadn't invested and they were teaching you exactly, how to invest. Exactly. So frustrating. <laughs> um, okay, awesome. So you've researched all these past past economic calamities extensively as part of your research and their cause and what the parallels are with our economy today. And the goal is obviously to help people forecast future issues more easily. There's so much discussion of financial crises today, not just by economists and not just by doom and gloomers, generally in, in the property market. So talk me through what you think is happening and about to happen in the global economy. When I talk about my my new book and my stance when it comes to, for example, real estate, people tend to be a bit shocked when they see that I'm not as bearish on real estate as they'd expect me to be, you know, because mm -hmm. on the one hand, I'm on this aggressive campaign of spreading the word about my book, telling people, look, it's time right now to think about the next financial crisis because I'm worried about this and that and this and that. And they would expect me to be extremely bearish on real estate. And when they ask me, I'm, you know, my answer is, okay, should I sell my real estate? My answer is more in, along the lines of you could, but probably not. Because the thing is, I'm not afraid. This is what I keep telling people uh, when we discuss this topic. I'm not afraid of the business cycle. Like, of course, if humans were angels, then the economy would move up in a continuous, predictable manner and it'll, it would all be great, but we're not. So when things, when times are good, people get, as Greenspan put it, it irrationally exuberant, they misallocate capital, and of course, things then eventually get bad, and the same people who were irrationally exuberant before all of a sudden become excessively frightened. And therefore, you know, it, it's a cyclical thing to have this boom and bust cycle, and I'm not worried about, you know, your average financial crisis. I'm not worried about the stock market or the real estate market correcting by or even crashing by 50%, 60%. Because again, someone like myself who even uh, trades cryptocurrencies, he's so used, I, I'm so used to extreme levels of volatility that no, it, these are not the things that keep me up at night. What keeps me up at night is the fact that eventually the narrative is going to change. Because let's let us please take a step back. You know, let's look at the dot com bubble and what happened. There was this huge crash. People were worried, and central bankers, for example, in the United States, said, "Look, we have to do something dramatic. So we're going to give the economy a bit of economic cocaine, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Like, let's just take interest rates from our very respectable." level of 6.5% back then and lower them all the way to 1%. It was huge for the time. And they did. And the narrative became that, look, times were bad, interest rates were lowered, dramatic measures were taken, but central bankers and to a certain extent governments saved the day. Then a bit of time passed, a real estate bubble was facilitated, among other things, by the access to cheap financing. But at least interest rates in the U.S., for example, start, got a chance to climb back up to not to 6.5% again, but at least to 5.25%, more than decent. Mm -hmm. We then had, as we know, the Great Recession. And once again, everyone was panicking. But don't worry, it's central bankers to the rescue. But of course... I, I, I did use the term uh, economic cocaine because much like an addict, the market demanded more 
of a stimulus. Yeah. So it was no longer enough to lower interest rates all the way down to zero. Money had to be pumped into the system as well to the tune of, once again in the U.S., $85 billion per month, 40 in mortgage-backed securities and 45 in treasuries. But once again, the narrative become, became that, okay, times were desperate, but don't worry, central bankers and governments came to the rescue, they know exactly what needs to be done, and look, they saved the day. But once again, this came at a price because 85 billion per month, let's multiply that by 12, and we're looking at about a trillion dollar per year. Now think about the fact that from 1913, when the Central Bank of the Federal Reserve, the current one, the Federal Reserve uh, of the United States, sorry, the Federal Reserve appeared. So from 1913, up until the Great Recession in almost 100 years, the monetary base had grown to 850 or so billion. So it was quite extraordinary that more money was pumped into the system in just one year than had existed from 1913 all the way to 2007, 2008. So all of this came at a price. And what I'm worried about is that eventually, in my opinion, sooner rather than later, the narrative is going to change in that, of course, we're going to have a, you know, an exogenous shock that triggers a global panic market crashes, you name it. So your usual market cycle behavior. Then, of course, governments and central banks are probably going to try more of the same, which is more aggressive stimulus. But with each business cycle that passes, the question becomes just how much longer can this last until the market says enough is enough? Because look at the United States, for example, interest rates started climbing back up but they're still at anemic levels. And here we are at these anemic levels over 10 years into this. Only once has it happened that there has been more time between recessions than in the present. So cyclically speaking, we're kind of, quote unquote, do a recession. And, for, and unfortunately, interest rates, even in the United States, didn't get a chance to climb up aggressively. Let's not even talk about the European Union or Japan, where they ventured into negative territory. So on the one hand, uh, central banks no longer had the safety cushion they had prior to the Great Recession. And on the other hand, as mentioned previously, the market is going to probably demand an even more dramatic dose of stimulus. So what I try to tell people is that what keeps me up at night is not the fact that we're going to have another market crash, but rather what happens next. Because every now and then, less frequently than your average financial crisis, but every now and then we have something we can consider a big reset. Or in other words, in our case, it would be something like, of course, we have we have our financial crisis, we have our central bankers and governments which try to, who, who try to do more of the same, but the market says, no, I no longer have confidence. Like, for example, let's assume that in the US, they decide to lower interest rates to negative 1% and pump, let's say, 3.5 trillion per year into the system instead of 1% eventually, eventually the market's going to say no. Enough is enough and confidence is going to be lost in the system. What this means, of course, is that from people losing confidence in banks to people losing confidence in currencies, something's got to give. And eventually it's going to be a huge transfer of wealth that's going to take place. And what worries me is that the average person, historically speaking, as I explained in, in, in the Age of Anomaly in Chapter 3, historically speaking, the average person tends to be on the wrong side of this. And coming back to real estate, 
in such a scenario, this is why I'm very cautious about being bearish because, I mean, of course, in our example, again, if your timing is impeccable, then yeah, you can sell your real estate, buy it back after the deflationary shock hits, and then you got a better deal. You can hold it during these periods of instability, of confidence loss and whatever. But you you know as well as I do that in the real estate world, you know, okay, sell your real estate now, which means find the buyer, close the deal, then buy your real estate back. Once again, find the seller, close the deal. To think that you're going to have impeccable timing, especially if you're not a professional, I think, I honestly believe it's a bit too arrogant, which is why I tell people that I, for one, would not be in a rush to sell my real estate, precisely because when it comes to the scenarios I envisioned and, and I, I articulate in my book, the goal here is preserving your wealth to the best of your ability. Don't make the mistake of being so arrogant that you assume, no, 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 I'm going to prepare, I'm going to do everything right, and I'm going to make so much money whereas while other people are suffering. That's probably not going to happen. This level of schadenfreude is not something that I consider healthy, mm -hmm. you know. So for this reason, for this reason, I am not as bearish on real estate as people would expect me to be. Mm -hmm. So, but property is a really important example of an imperfect market still. And exactly as you say, I mean, it's not so easy to just say, look, do you know what? I'm going to sell tomorrow. It doesn't work like that. Um, there's lots of imperfections and it's not as liquid as <laughs> it might be otherwise. Um, boom and bust cycles, traditional cycles proliferate and there's lots of people forecasting a crash, which may or may not be related to the kind of doomsday scenario that you're describing. So. I think property crashes both reflect other economic forces and also affect them. And obviously there's a huge difference between different markets across the world as well as different course, types of, of property. What do you think is going to happen in residential property and why? Not on a personal level necessarily, but um, on a yeah, broader well, market, market forces level. Exactly. Uh, broadly speaking, and as you've mentioned previously, it's highly location dependent because mm. if if you live in a country that's already politically, sociopolitically unstable as it is, then of course you might be just one exogenous shock away from basically a coup d'etat or something else, a power, a regime change, which is going to negatively impact your uh, real estate holdings. You know, mm. like if you live, I keep telling people in my book, if you live in a politically unstable country, then of course real estate should be perceived far differently because one thing can lead to another and the new regime can say, oh, you have more than one property, we're going to confiscate everything that's, that exceeds one property. So it, you have to have this self-awareness as an investor when it comes to the landscape you're in. On the other hand, for example, on the other hand, however, if you live in a, in a developed country like the United Kingdom, the United States, if you live, generally speaking, in a country that has a decent track record of respecting property rights, then when it comes to the type of scenario I'm envisioning, I think real estate need is going to have a huge role. It's going to have a huge role. Like, for example, if if you currently own real estate and you're making, and you're, for example, in my case, you're earning some money by renting your real estate out. Of course, if a financial crisis is going to hit, you might not thrive. I mean, your your income might take a hit, but your real estate is still going to exist. Yeah. The fact is still going to remain that people need a roof over their heads. So essentially, more likely than not, 
even if you're going to suffer an income reduction or you know all, all sorts of uh, of shocks you're still going to have it you're still going to have something you're still going to have options and i place personally so much value in that so much value in owning something tangible uh, so much value in owning something for which there's so much legitimate demand as there is for real estate and decent locations so yeah personally personally given my given my current portfolio and what i have i do not intend to sell yeah i'm not i'm not buying anything at at, at this point i'm not maybe 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 something uh that's uh, related to the plans i have personally with my wife and uh her finishing her uh residency as a doctor so but again it's something highly personal but strictly from an investment perspective so strictly from a risk to reward perspective associated with making an acquisition now i wouldn't necessarily be extremely tempted to do so but on the other hand I'm not tempted to liquidate what I currently have either. Mm. Well, as you say, the risk-adjusted return is better in property than in most of the other assets that you're concerned about at the moment. I mean, you see it as part of potentially part of the solution to a major Most um, definitely, economic yes. um, crisis. So knowing what is going to happen in terms of a doomsday scenario is useful, but it's a bit scary and it's a bit depressing <laughs> to know that it might happen. So where it is out of any one of our individual controls, what can individuals and businesses do that is practical to prepare for the kind of doomsday scenario that you described in terms of economics? And I mean, you've alluded to property where you're saying keep it, um, but other financial and economic decisions that individuals make. Of course. Now, um, this is where I differ a bit from, from, from many of my peers in that unlike a lot of other economists, I actually embrace my incompetence when it comes to predicting the future. And not only do I embrace my incompetence, I actually make it a core pillar of my strategy. So you're not going to receive advice reading my book or, or, or from my videos to the tune of, hey, I know exactly what's going to happen. I know exactly when it's going to happen. And you have to just prepare for this single scenario that I'm envisioning and everything's going to be just peachy. No. Instead, the type of, of, of thinking that you're going to come across in the age of anomaly and in my work, generally speaking, is this. I am humble enough to know that the next crash and what happens next may very well take me by surprise as well. So personally, yes, of course, you keep your eyes open. I teach you in the age of anomaly how to do it. Fair enough. But it would be a huge mistake not to invest just as much time and energy in becoming more financially resist, uh, resilient in general. And it's not rocket science. You know, you've mentioned earlier on that, of course, these things seem scary. They do. They most definitely do. But at the same time, I keep telling people these these concerns should not take over your life. I mean, you, you've surely come across on the Internet many people who, you know, make it their life's mission to prepare for this, who, who prepare for that. I'm not necessarily asking people for, for this level of commitment. Not at all. Instead, like you've mentioned, I'm simply telling them, and, and, and in my book, I explain how to do it in more, in more detail. Look, look around you. What country are you living in? What is your current situation? Take a long walk, enjoy yourself, do whatever it is that clears your mind and compile a list of assets you consider desirable. You know, real estate, certain stocks, maybe a bit of crypto. It's ultimately all up to you. It's all up to your risk tolerance, but you should now's as good of a time as any to compile such a list 
and you don't have to buy them all right away. Instead, you have this list, you know, okay, I consider this desirable in my case, I consider that desirable in my case. So I make it a goal to eventually, the keyword here is eventually, have exposure to all of these assets. Now, when it comes to, I don't know, something I consider grossly overpriced, like let's say bonds, mm -hmm. you might decide that simply put, when it comes to the bond market, you are not rewarded for your risk properly enough. So you can say, I'm not going to buy this asset right now. Instead, if, if, if you do make it a goal to have exposure to this asset class, you're going to keep the idea on the back burner. And should a crash occur across those assets and should prices reach a level at which you feel that you're adequately re uh, rewarded for the type of risk, for the amount of risk you take on, then sure, go for it. Again, it's not rocket science. It's mm -hmm. all a matter ultimately of smart diversification and finding the right balance between assets that enable you to land on your feet under a wide range of scenarios. Like in my book, I, I take things one step further and I, and, and I uh, basically divide these assets into type of assets. You know, mm -hmm. on the one hand, you have uh, status quo assets like real estate, like stocks, assets that have been along, around for a long time. And on the other hand, you have what I call trailblazer assets or newer assets that uh, have not been around for so long. And we're talking about things like, you know, domain names, websites, cryptocurrencies, and so on. But of course, we have these two dimensions. But in each case, you have various types of assets, like you have uh, you have assets that perform well when there's a risk on environment on the one. Then you also have assets that are perceived as life jacket assets, or in other words, assets that uh, thrive when there are periods of uncertainty. Then, of course, you have sentiment neutral assets, which aren't necessarily related to, directly correlated to market sentiment as much. Now, that's kind of the key here, finding the right balance between, okay, you want your status quo assets. You have stocks as a random example of an asset that's that does well when uh, the sentiment is risk on. Then you have, of course, maybe precious metals as an example of an asset that you buy to hedge against uncertainty related to when it comes to precious metals, of course, inflation concerns or banking related concerns and so on. So there you have it. Make it a goal to have exposure to risk on assets, to risk off assets, and basically have a balanced portfolio when it comes to traditional status quo assets. When it comes to the newer ones, once again, of course, for example, crypto, okay, why would you buy crypto? Well, historically speaking, there has been decent correlation when it comes to crypto and banking related fears, with the most eloquent example being uh, what happened in Cyprus in 2013 with the banking, uh, bank holidays, capital controls, and so on. So if you have concerns related to banking, related to, to the monetary system, it makes sense to have a little bit of exposure perhaps to crypto. Mm -hmm. How much? Again, it depends on your risk tolerance. If you're someone who works in IT-related fields, if you're extremely technically savvy, then of course someone like yourself is going to be in the far better position to have a bit more exposure in terms of net worth percentage to crypto than someone who can barely use a smartphone. The key here, this is the idea I'm trying to sell. Like, There are certain things in life that shouldn't be outsourced. Like, No matter how, how, how long of a conversation I have with a person, I'm still not going to be anywhere near in as good of a position to make life-altering financial choices for that person 
than he or she is, you know. So kind of like the, the value I try to provide is in giving these people the tools they need to make decisions themselves. Like in, I try to take it logically. I try to take it one step at a time, you know. On the one hand, of course, let's take a look at what happened in the past. Then let's draw some conclusions about human nature, about well, how we tend to act when there are periods of uncertainty. Next, we're going to see if we find common denominators. Then we're going to see if these common denominators can be put to good use to help you keep your eyes open and preferably spot the next crisis as early on as possible. If that, is not, if that won't occur, then, of course, as mentioned previously, let's talk about being more financially resilient in general. Moving on to diversification, let's take each asset class one at a time, analyze the pros, analyze the cons, and see on a case-by-case basis, which represents the best choice as far as you're concerned. Like basically the same kind of, of, of approach that helped me become successful on YouTube and that convinced a lot of people to pay attention to my work, I'm applying it in my book. You know, there's no need to panic. There's no need to, you know, put everything else on hold and only think about these things from now on. Not at all. I try to basically in a very conversational manner, like if you've read through the book a, a bit, you're going to see that when reading The Age of Anomaly, it's not like you have this arrogant economics professor who talks to you from his ivory tower. It's kind of, It's more like having a friend who just happens to be good at money related stuff and shares some in, some, you know, insights with you. Fantastic. Okay. So if listeners want to follow what you're up to in general and get in touch and also to get hold of a copy of the book, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, well, my goal right now is like getting as much exposure for the book as possible. I I really, at this point in my career, and especially in this international context, I don't care that much about the money. So for example, when you're going to release this podcast, there's going to be this huge discount period going on. The book is going to be available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, which is Apple's app, and uh, Kobo is going to be available until Sunday for just 99 cents. After Sunday, it's going to be back to its regular price at it is going to be low anyway, something like 10 bucks. Now, if any of you listening are in a very bad place financially, or if you happen to be, I don't know, for the time being in a country that nobody does business with, and, and, and there's no way for you to get your hands on my book, no problem. I've set up an email address called friends at ageofanomaly.com. So if for financial reasons, maybe you're going to listen to this podcast later on after the promo period ended, or maybe for another reason, if for one reason or another, you're not able to get your hands to buy the book, then just shoot me an email at friends at ageofanomaly.com and I'll hook you up with a free copy. So that's that's one thing. You can, you're can you going to be able to find the book by simply searching for its name, The Age of Anomaly, on your platform of choice. So on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble, on any of the platforms. Maybe you can uh, put some links uh, yeah, put some links up as well. And of course, I'm also, to celebrate the launch of the book and generate some more buzz around it, I'm also going to have a pretty awesome contest with lots of prizes on my One Minute Economics YouTube channel. So you might want to head over there, just uh, type in youtube.com forward slash One Minute Economics or again, search for One Minute Economics on Google or on YouTube. You're going to be easily uh, be able to find me and see uh, what's happening with the contest as well. And that's pretty much it. If you guys want to get in touch directly, you can simply leave a comment on one of my videos or you can head on over to the about section of my channel where I list my email address. Things are going to be hectic with the book launch and everything. But if you get in touch with me, I'm going to do my best to reply. 
for sure. Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. I'll put all those links in the show notes and um, yeah, look forward to reading it. Thanks for listening. What I loved about this interview is that Andre's perspective is both controversial and also incredibly logical. A portfolio of gold exotic assets such as crypto and domain names and property is not something everyone would consider. But if you think about the external factors that Andre discussed, it all makes sense. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, you can find out more on our website, thereturnpodcast.com, Instagram, the.return.podcast, Facebook, The Return Podcast group and page. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you've enjoyed or learned something from the podcast. Your reviews help other people to find the podcast as Apple Podcasts loves reviews. Thanks and goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.